Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 16, verses 1 through 3. And it came to pass that as the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he stood by the lake of Genseret and saw two ships standing by the lake. But the fishermen were gone out of them and were washing their nets. And he entered into one of the ships, which was Simon's, and prayed him that he would thrust out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people out of the ship. Burkett notes, here observe one, that our Savior used the sea as well as the land in his passage from place to place to preach the gospel. And the reasons why he did so might probably be these. One, to show nature's intent and making of the sea, namely, to be sailed upon, as the land was to be walked upon. Two, that Christ might take occasion to manifest his deity in working of miracles upon the sea namely, by calming of the waves and stilling of the wind. Three, it might be to comfort seafaring men in their distresses and to encourage them to pray to such a Savior as had experimental knowledge of the dangers of the sea. It were well if sailors would consider this and instead of inuring themselves to the language of hell when they go down into the deep, would direct their prayers unto Christ and look up to him, who now in heaven has the remembrance of what he himself endured and underwent here on earth and on the sea. Observe 3. The circumstance of time. When Christ used to put forth to sea, it was usually after he'd wrought some extraordinary miracle, which set them on admiring and commending of him, as after he had fed so many thousand with a few barley loaves and fishes, presently he put forth to sea, shunning thereby all popularity and vainglorious applause from the multitude, which he was never ambitious of, but industriously avoided. Observe 3. That after our Savior's resurrection, we never find him sailing any more upon the seas. For such a fluctuating and turbulent condition, which necessarily attends sea voyages, was utterly inconsistent with the constancy, stability, and perpetuity of Christ's estate when risen from the grave. The firm land better agreeing with his fixed state, he keeps upon it till his ascension into heaven. Observe 4 that Christ scruples not to preach to his people in and out of the ship. He sat down and taught people out of the ship. Sometimes we find our holy Lord preaching upon a mountain, sometimes in a ship, sometimes in a house, as often as may be in a synagogue. He that laid hold of all seasons for preaching the gospel never scrupled any place which conveniency offered to preach in, well knowing that it is the ordinance that sanctifies the place and not the place the ordinance. Verses 4 through 11. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, Launch out into the deep, and let down your nets for a draft. And Simon answering unto him said, Master, we've toiled all the night, and have taken nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes, and their nets break. And they beckoned unto their partners, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships, so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him, at the draft of fishes which they had taken. And so was also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, which were partners with Simon. And Jesus said unto Simon, Fear not, from henceforth thou shalt catch men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. Burkett notes, observe here, 1. 
Our Savior, having delivered his doctrine to the people, confirms his doctrine with a miracle, and with such a miracle as did at once instruct and encourage his apostles. The miraculous number of fish which they had caught did presage and prefigure their miraculous success in preaching, planting, and propagating the gospel. Observe, too, our Savior's command to Peter and his ready compliance with Christ's command. Let down your nets for a draft, says Christ. We have toiled all night, says St. Peter, and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at thy word I will let down the net. This mystically represents to us, one, that the fishers of men may labor all night and all day too and catch nothing. This is sometimes the fisherman's fault, but oftener the fish's. It is the fisher's fault that nothing is taken if he doth only play upon the sands and not launch out into the deep. Deliver some superficial and less necessary truths without opening to the people the great mysteries of godliness. If they fish with broken nets, either deliver unsound doctrine or lead unexemplary lives. If they do not cast their nets on the right side of the ship, that is, rightly divide the word, as workmen that need not to be ashamed. And if they do not fish at Christ's command, but run a fishing unsent, it is then no wonder that they labor all their days and catch nothing. But very often it's the fish's faults rather than the fishermen's. Worldly men are crafty and cunning. They will not come near the net. Hypocrites are slippery like eels. The fishermen cannot long hold them, but they dart into their holes, priding themselves in their external performances and satisfying themselves with a round of duties. The great men of the world break through the net. The divine commands cannot bind them. Jeremiah 5.5 I will go to the great men and speak to them. But they have broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Observe 3. The miraculous success which St. Peter had when at Christ's command he let down the net. They enclosed such a multitude of fishes that their net break. Two things our Savior aimed at in this miracle. One, to manifest to his disciples the power of his Godhead, that they might not be offended at the poverty and meanness of his manhood. Two, to assure them of the great success which his apostles and their successors might expect in planting and propagating of the gospel. If the ministers of Christ, whom he calls the fishers of men, be faithful in the cast, his power shall be magnified in the draft. Some of our fish will cleave eternally to the rocks, others play upon the sands, more will wallow in the mud and continue all their days in the filth of sin, if our master, at whose command we let down the net, doth not enclose the minute, as well as assist us in the casting of it. Observe 4. What influence the sight of this miracle had upon Peter. It occasioned fear and amazement, and caused him to adore Christ, and declare himself unworthy of his presence. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Not that the good man was weary of Christ's presence, but acknowledged himself unworthy of it. It is a great discovery of our holiness to revere God and fear before him, when he doth wonderful things before us, though they be wonders of love and mercy. Here was a wonderful appearance of Christ's power and mercy to St. Peter, but it affects him with a reverential fear and awful astonishment. Observe 5. How St. Peter and the rest of the apostles, at Christ's call, forsook all and followed him. They left father and friends, ship and nets, and followed Jesus. Whom Christ calls, he calls effectually. He draws whom he calls, and works their heart to a ready compliance to their duty. And although when they were first called to be disciples, they followed their trade of fishing for a time, 
Yet upon the second call to the apostleship, they left off their trade and forsook all to follow the ministry, teaching the ministry of the gospel that it is their duty to give themselves wholly up to their great work and not to encumber themselves with secular affairs and worldly business. Nothing but an indispensable necessity in providing for a family can excuse a minister's encumbering himself with worldly concerns and business. They forsook all and followed Jesus. Verses 12 through 15. And it came to pass, when he was in a certain city, behold, a man full of leprosy, who, seeing Jesus, fell on his face and besought him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And he put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will, be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy departed from him. And he charged him to tell no man, but to go and show thyself to the priest, and offer for thy cleansing according as Moses commanded, for a testimony unto them. But so much the more went there a fame abroad of him, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. Burkett notes, Observe here one, the petitioner, that in a very humble and submissive manner sues unto Christ for a cure and healing. A leper fell on his face and besought him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. He did not question Christ's power, but distrusts his willingness to help and heal him. Christ's divine power must be fully assented to and firmly believed by all those that expect benefit by him and healing from him. Observe, too, the great readiness of Christ to help and heal this distressed person. Jesus touched him, saying, I will, be thou clean. By the ceremonial law, the leper was forbidden to be touched. Therefore, Christ touching this leper shows himself to be above the law, that he was the Lord of it and might dispense with it. And his healing this leper, by the word of his mouth and the touch of his hand, showed him to be truly and really sent of God. For leprosy among the Jews was accounted an incurable distemper, called the finger of God, a disease of his sending and of his removing. Our Savior, therefore, as a proof of his being the Messiah, tells John's disciples, Matthew 11.5, that the lepers were cleansed and the dead raised by him. Which two being joined together do imply that the cleansing of the lepers is as much an act of divine power as the raising of the dead. And accordingly, 2 Kings 5.7, it is said, Am I God that this man sends unto me to cure a person of his leprosy? Observe 3. The certainty and the suddenness of the cure was a farther proof of Christ's divine power. Immediately the leprosy departed. Christ not only cured him immediately, but instantaneously. Not only without means, but without the ordinary time required for such a cure. Thus, Christ showed both power and will to cure a miraculously who believed in his power but questioned his willingness. Observe 4. A twofold charge and command given by Christ to the leper. 1. Tell it to no man, where the great modesty, piety, and humility of our Savior are discovered, together with the prudent care he took of his own safety, his modesty in concealing his own praises, his humility in shunning all vainglorious applause and commendation, his piety in referring all the honor and glory to God his Father, and the caring of his own safety appeared, lest the publishing of his miracles should create untimely danger from the Pharisees. 2. The next part of the charge given to the recovered leper is to go and show himself to the priest, and to offer the gift which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. 
that is, to testify to the Jews that he did not oppose the ceremonial law, which required a thanks offering at his hand, and also that the miracle might testify that he was the true and promised Messiah. Learn hence that our blessed Savior would have the ceremonial law punctually observed, so long as the time of its continuance did endure. Though he came to destroy that law, yet while it stood, he would have it exactly observed. See note on St. Matthew 8, 2. Verse 16. And he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. Burkett notes, The duty of private and solitary prayer is not more strictly enjoined by our Savior's command than it is recommended to us by his example. Observe 1. The duty which our Holy Lord performed. Prayer. We have much more business with God in prayer than Christ had. He had no sins to be humbled for, nor begged pardon of. No need to pray for any sanctifying habits of grace, the Holy Spirit being given to him without measure. Yet did our Holy Lord spend much of his time in prayer. He took delight in paying this homage to his Heavenly Father. Observe, too, what kind of a prayer our Lord did eminently delight in. It was solitary and private prayer. He often went alone, even out of hearing of his own disciples. The company of our best friends is not always seasonable nor acceptable. There are times and seasons when a Christian would not be willing that his dearest relation upon earth should hear that intercourse which passes between him and his God. Observe 3. The place our Lord withdraws to for private prayer. It is the desert. He withdrew into the wilderness and prayed, both to avoid ostentation and also to enjoy communion with his Father. The modest bridegroom of his church, says St. Bernard, will not impart himself so freely to his spouse before company. St. Mark 1.35 adds that our Savior rose up a great while before day and went into the desert place to pray, teaching us that the morning is the fit season, yea, the best of seasons for private duties. Now our spirits are freshest and our spirits freest before the distraction of the day break in upon us. It is certainly much better to go from prayer to business than from business to prayer. Note lastly that our blessed Savior had no idle hours here in the world. His time did not lay upon his hands as ours do. He was always either preaching or praying, or working miracles, either paying homage to God or doing good to man. Lord, help us to imitate this, thy instructive example, by embracing all opportunities of glorifying God and doing good to one another.